Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to uh, two places. We're going to be spending most of our time today in the second Psalm. So if you want to Flip over to Psalms and find Psalm number two and put your finger there. And then we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 13. We, I just want to touch on something in Hebrews 11 and then go to, to Psalm 2 in just a moment. The writer of Hebrews records these words, these all died in faith. Now let me just take a moment and stop there. Who are the these? The these that the writer of Hebrews is referring to are the, the people involved in this roll call of faith, the hall of fame of faith, however you want to refer to it. It is a list of individuals that, whose stories are mentioned in the Old Testament. And the writer of Hebrews highlights many of these and says they all lived by faith. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth for people who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. The writer of Hebrews says that these individuals in the roll call of faith and the hall of fame of faith, they understood that this world was not their ultimate home. They understood that the land in which they lived was not the ultimate land in which they would reside for all eternity. They were seeking a homeland, and so they were living as strangers and exiles. Now, as Robert mentioned, we are celebrating uh, America's birthday tomorrow. And the question, though, really comes down to how is it that we live in our nation in the right way as a good citizen, as a biblical citizen, and how is it that we live in such a way that we also understand that we are kingdom citizens and that one day America or any other nation that anybody might be a part of is going to be no more? How do we live as a stranger in exile given those parameters? Because those are the real biblical parameters. When we get to heaven, there's not going to be a Canadian section, an American section, and an and a English section, or you know, a Tanzanian se- section. There's not going to be that. We're just going to be kingdom's citizens. That's how it's going to be. But how do we live right here and right now with our boundaries and our national identity and things of that nature? Now, whenever you start going down this road, usually there are two extremes that we want to avoid. There's the one extreme that you see so many times plastered all across the headlines and so many times uh, with all this legacy media, and you hear things like this. We hate America. We don't stand for America. We hate everything America stands for. We hate the, the history of America. We hate it all. Now, that's just not a biblical approach. Now, let me tell you something else that's not a biblical approach. When we make patriotism our national religion, that's not a biblical approach either. And I'm not saying we need to be somewhere in between. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying we just need to be biblical when we approach this topic. Can we absolutely love our nation and be good citizens of our nation and seek the best for our nation and at the same time be citizens of the kingdom who are seeking this eternal homeland? The biblical answer is absolutely yes, we can. 
So what does that look like, though? How do we live as strangers and exiles and at the same time live as citizens of the nation in which we find ourselves? Whether it's America, whether it's Canada, whether it's Mexico, whether it's someplace in Europe or Africa or, or Asia, how do we live in that way? Well, I want us to look at the second psalm. Now, the second psalm, it's fairly short, and, and the second psalm deals with life among the nations. How do the nations respond to God as a whole, and then how does God respond in turn, and what responsibilities are upon us? So how do we live as strangers and exiles as we live among the nations? Well, the first one is this. We must hold a biblical view of sin and its consequences. If we're going to live as strangers and exiles, as sometimes it's, it's sojourners or pilgrims. If we're going to live as strangers and exiles, though, we need to understand biblically what is sin and the consequences. Look with me in Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? So the psalmist is writing about the nations of the world are rebelling against God. Nation, all these nations are in rebellion against God. They want to do their own thing. They want to, the people want to do what they want to do and they plot, notice the Bible says, in vain. They're, they're making plans and they're plotting against God. Verse two, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs The Lord holds them in derision, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. When all the nations of the world plot together, when all the nations of the world say we're going to cast off restraint, when all the nations of the world say we're not going to do what God leads us to do, we're not going to do what God says, we're going to even deny there is a God, and we're going to stand on our own two feet, we're going to make our own rules, we're going to live life by our, our own understanding, this is how we're going to operate, and God, or whomever you may want to assign that name to, as some people would say, God has nothing to do with this, he has nothing to say about that. They even go as far as to deny there is a God. Many of you have heard, I've told the story before, I was talking to a gentleman one time, and he told me in the same breath how angry he was at God, and then secondarily, he told me how he doesn't even believe in God. And I said, that makes no sense. He said, what? It makes perfect sense. I said, how are you angry at a God you don't even believe in? I said, that's like saying you're furious about unicorns. That makes no sense. How can you be angry at someone you don't believe in? But the Bible says that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The Bible doesn't say those who are well thought and understand and have come to a logical conclusion, there is no God. No, the Bible says the fool has said there is no God. Now, so many times you hear, I've heard people say before, well, atheists don't believe in God. Well, you know what the Bible says? God doesn't believe in atheists. Uh, you, you deny the fact that there is a God. So you find that these nations are saying, no God, no God, no God. We're going to deny you exist. We're going to deny your rule over us. We're going to cast off all these bonds. And notice what the psalmist says, that the Lord, verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. There's that old saying about if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. So the nations say, we have our plans. We're going to do what we're going to do. And God laughs with derision. (laughs) You don't know who you're dealing with. You don't know who you're fooling with. 
Oh, we're going we're gonna to do this and we're going to get God out of this area. We're going we're gonna to revoke God's rule over this. We're going to remove God from this area. We're, we're going to say, God, no more. And God says, go ahead. And he laughs. He laughs in derision. We have to have a clear understanding, though, of sin and its consequences because look at what the Bible says. Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God has his king. God is, has assigned that throne, and God rules over all things. And we'll talk more about that in our next point. But we must have a biblical view of sin and the biblical view of sin's consequences. Now, I've heard people say, well, you know, God would never send wrath upon America. I've, I've had people say that. And they give different, they cite different reasons. One reason, sometimes people say, is they say, well, we have a godly heritage. We we say we were founded on godly principles. Therefore, God would never do that. God would never send his wrath upon us as a nation because we have a godly heritage that we can go back to. Can I just remind us all of something? The vast majority of Ivy League colleges were started as Christian colleges. Now, I don't know of any one of us that would look at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Brown, and we would say, you know what? That is a Christian institution. That is a Christian school. They were originally designed, they were originally created to train pastors, to train clergy, and then to train other spiritual leaders. That was the point. They're not that anymore. But now, none of us are going to look and say, well, because of, because of Harvard's godly legacy, God's going, to, God's going to pour out his blessings on Harvard. God's going to pour out his blessings upon Yale because they were started as a Christian institution. God is going to absolutely bless the socks off of Princeton because Princeton began as a godly, God-seeking institution. We wouldn't say that. But sometimes we say that about America. Uh, We wouldn't say that about our families. Well, you know, this person says, well, you know, I I know my family's okay because my great-great-grandfather was a pastor. And he was a very strong Christian. And so I'm just going to ride his coattails to glory. Well, we would say, you're not going to do that. But yet sometimes we do that about our nation. All right? God, is, God is looking at us right now, and God is looking at our sin right now. And I love America. I love our nation. But it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at what's going on and recognize the republic is in trouble. We are in need of God. We are in need of a movement of God. Sometimes we say, well, and and I've heard this, and this has become more prevalent here lately in the last few years. I've heard from from some people, and they'll say, the reason God's going to bless America is because we have a special covenant agreement with God. Now, and and they'll cite these different books. Can I tell you, America doesn't have an everlasting covenant with God. Now, I know different people have written books on the subject, but you can find a book about any subject that you want, by the way. But you don't find that. God has made a covenant with one, an everlasting covenant with one nation, and that's Israel. He's made that covenant with Israel. He didn't make it with any other nation. He made it with Israel. And the covenant with Israel was, he's going to bless them. He's going to protect them. He's going to give them a land. He's going to bring them together. And we find that God does that. It's not a, it's not a, a free pass to heaven. That's not what he's saying. But he made an everlasting covenant with the nation of Israel. And he's not done with Israel yet. And so sometimes when people say the church has replaced Israel, no, not according to the Bible, God has a future for Israel. Or we say, I've heard some people say America has replaced Israel. Can I just tell you, you have to make some really big 
very grand, very wrong-headed theological jumps to get to the point that you say America has replaced national Israel. You, just, just don't do that. Don't go there because you, you really can't do that biblically speaking. So we don't find that God has made an everlasting covenant. We also don't find, as, as some people like to say, they, they will say, well, uh, find in verse 5, he will speak to them in his wrath. Well, God's never going to send wrath because we have a majority of our population are Christians. Can I tell you what the latest statistic is? It's estimated between 6 and 9% of Americans hold to a true biblical worldview of the understanding of who God is, the way of salvation, the means by which we go to heaven through Jesus Christ, the reality of heaven, the reality of hell. Only about 6 to 9% have an orthodox view of the faith. 6 to 9%. That is approximately, if you took all of the true Christians in America, put them all in one space, they would occupy a space that, with the same population of New York State. You could put all the Christians in America in New York State. That's, and I don't mean just crammed in together. I mean, as the population of New York State is currently, you could put all the Christians in America in that one place. So it's not that we're a majority. Now, I know sometimes we'll say something like this. Oh, but everybody I know is a Christian. Well, first of all, the answer to that is no. Uh, <laughs> uh, and secondly, if it, if it happened to be true, you need to, you need to meet some more people. But not everybody that we know. And I realize we live in the Bible Belt, and there's a large percentage of people who follow Christ. Absolutely. But this is not the way it is in so many places around our nation. And so we have to understand that. So what does God say? God says that I will bless, but he blesses something very specific. Look in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. What exalts a nation? Nation. Righteousness. That's what God wants. He longs for righteousness. How does righteousness come? Through the person, the sacrifice, the resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. That's how we are deemed righteous. It, it doesn't, and so many times I think what we settle for is we settle for the behavior. In recent years, I've, I've read in church world, you get so many articles, you get so many books that flood you as a pastor, and so many people saying so many different things, and, and so many people I've heard from the church world over the last few years, they're saying, we have lost so many Christians over the last few years. Over the last five years, all these people, we have lost them as Christians. They have gone away. They've, we've lost them. They've fallen away from the faith. Well, biblically speaking, it, we, we, haven't, we have not had that many people die. But they're saying these people, have to, they've, just, they've just left the faith. Well, according to the Bible, they never were of the faith. If they can walk away from God without any pain of conscience, without any conviction, and they can just leave him behind, then they were not of the faith. They went out from us because they were not of us, according to the Bible. And so we have to understand what has really happened. What has really happened is this. There was a time, and, and I lament this as well, y'all. There was a time when... A lot of people in our nation shared the same basic worldview. They may not have been Christians, but at least there was a, a notion of common decency. There was the idea of family values. There was the idea of, of, of cultural norms. There were just some things that were just considered rude or out of place if you did them. 
And so everybody lived under this, and it was largely because of the Judeo-Christian influence. Absolutely. But it doesn't mean they were necessarily Christians. It just means this was the common, cultural, popular way to live. What has happened? That has changed. The most popular way of lifestyle now is self-centered. It glorifies sin. It, it promotes all manner of things that, that would not align with our worldview. And if we aren't careful, we will look at all of that and we will say, oh, all these, all these Christians, they've just left. Okay, can I tell you? They never were. They never were. They just shared some commonalities, but they didn't share the most important thing that should have been a commonality, and that's Jesus. And so we have settled for just the behavior and we in the church are guilty. The church in America is very guilty of this, that we've just settled for some sort of sanitized behavior instead of an actual sanctification and transformation. We've settled for behavior modification instead of heart transformation. We've settled for, well, they may not be Christians, but at least they're good people and they're good neighbors and their kids are polite and they seem awfully patriotic and they seem awfully nice and they, they take their garbage out on time. And so they must be okay. Can I just tell you? That's not the way the Bible says it works. Righteousness comes from knowing Christ and having our hearts transformed. And we can have, you know, we can have God in our songs and we can have God on our currency and we can have God all over our monuments and we can even have God in our founding documents. But if we do not have God in our hearts, none of those things matter. None of those things matter. We have to have a biblical view of sin. We have to have a biblical understanding of the consequences of sin. Not just for us as individuals, but for our nation. If you look over in Romans chapter 1, there's an extended treatment of the idea of the wrath of God. And we touched on this last week. And sometimes when we talk about the wrath of God, I think we have the wrong idea. Or, well, let me put it, we don't have the wrong idea. We have a limited view of the wrath of God. We'll say something like this. Well, the wrath of God is his eternal wrath in hell that's the wrath of god and that's where we leave it the problem with that is throughout the bible there are different ways that god expresses his wrath and by the way when god expresses his wrath it's not some willy-nilly thing it's not like he just loses his temper and just act, responds in a in some sort of fickle way and just responds in an impulsive way no he knows exactly what he's doing and it is a very measured and very directed approach to his wrath Unlike so many times when we express our human wrath, our sinful wrath. God's wrath is never sinful. But when we look at God's wrath, we see that, yes, there is the ultimate wrath of God, the eternal wrath of God that takes place in hell. But we also find other demonstrations of God's wrath. We find God's wrath in cataclysmic events. Say the flood, for instance. Now, that's not an eternal wrath, but God responds with some sort of cataclysmic event, some sort of big earth-shattering event that the Bible talks about, some, something that's apocalyptic. Sometimes God responds with a natural form of wrath. That is, he just allows the natural consequences of our actions to take place. And because of that, we bring harm and injury upon ourselves. But there's another form of wrath, and probably a few others, but there's another form of wrath that I just want us to mention just in passing today, and that is the wrath of abandonment. Sometimes God will actively turn someone over to their own sin. Now understand, this isn't just a passive thing. I'm just going to let the natural consequences occur. The, the phrase is actually used for a prisoner transfer. God turns someone over 
to someone else. And in Romans chapter 1, that's what it talks about. Notice Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Notice the verb. For the wrath of God is revealed. That means it's taking place currently. That doesn't mean the wrath of God will be revealed. No, the wrath of God is in operation. The wrath of God is something that God is doing so far as abandonment is concerned. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. No one can say, I didn't have enough information to believe in God. The Bible says you do. You're without excuse. Creation screams out that there's a creator. Creation sings out there is a God. And the Bible says that it is clearly perceived. But verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images representing mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So they turn from God, they ignore God, and they turn toward idols. They turn toward worshiping things that are not God, whether that's something on the outside or whether they're worshiping themselves. That's what God says they did. Whenever they chose to say, no, I'm not going to follow the one true God. Can I just tell you, everybody is going to follow a God. Everyone will follow a God. Even the most staunch atheist who says, I do not believe in God. I'm not going to follow God. They have a God, little g God, that they follow and that they worship. Whether it's themselves, whether it's understanding, whether it's learning, whatever it is, worldly, worldly wisdom, they have a God. Everybody has a God. Notice what God does. This is the response to God. This is the outworking of his wrath. Verse 24, the wrath of abandonment. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So the Bible says the outworking of God's wrath When they refuse to acknowledge there is a God and they refuse to give thanks to God, then God said, I am going to actively turn you over to your own desires and I'm going to give you what you've been asking for this whole time. Everything you've been asking for, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to let you live without me. I'm going to let you live apart from me. I'm going to let you seek understanding without my wisdom. I'm going to actively turn you over. And you understand this, that is the outworking of his wrath. That's the result of his wrath. And then it gets worse. Look at verse 26. For this reason, for this reason, because they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Verse 25, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up their natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
The outworking of all the sexual immorality, we say so many times, oh, God's going to send his wrath on all this sexual immorality in our nation. Can I tell you, according to this text, that is the outworking of God's wrath. That is the abandonment of God. That is the removal of God from the minds and hearts of men and women and allowing them and transferring them over prisoner-wise to give, to, be, to receive exactly what they've been asking for all this time. And that's what God does. And you say, well, does it get worse? It gets much worse. Look at verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, the wages of sin is death, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. That's the outworking of wrath. And we see it in our nation. We see these things being outworked out and sometimes we say, oh, God's going to send wrath if we don't repent. Can I tell you, Wrath is already being worked out, and we still need to repent. We have to have a clear biblical understanding of sin and its consequences. Secondly, we have to, hold a, we have to embrace God's order for creation. We have to embrace God's order for creation. Look at verse 7. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So we find that God says his son is over all creation. His son is ruling over all the nations. There is an order that God has set up so far as creation is concerned. I gave you the three institutions there, according to the Bible, that are set up by God. There is the family, there's the government, and there's the church. And all of those have been started by God. The family started by God. The government is started by God. You find that the church started by God. And so many times we, we get those things confused. And we say, yeah, well, this is more important than this, and this is more important than that, and that rules over this, and this and that. Okay, each one of those has its own realm of authority. And sometimes there's a little overlap, but sometimes there's not. For instance, the, the church is not in charge of capital punishment. The government is. You find that the family is not in charge of capital punishment. The government is. We find that the family is not in charge of gathering a large group of people together and participating in the ordinances that are mentioned in the Bible baptism and the lord's supper and worshiping together as a body no that's not that's not the role of the family and likewise you don't find the church showing up you know knocking on your door walking into your house and saying this way that you are dealing with this particular thing in your home right here right now that's got to change you don't you don't see that occurring so you find that there are realms of authority that God has given each one of these institutions. God has an order to his universe. And God creates the nations. Listen to Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God removes kings and he sets up kings. He brings in leaders. He takes down leaders. He brings up reigns and rules, and he tears down reigns and rules. So many times we look at situations that go on, and we say, well, the outcome of that election was so horrible, it was so terrible, and it might have been, and oh, where is God in the middle of this? God is setting up and tearing down. God is raising up and bringing low. 
God is still on his throne. There has never come a point in time pre-post mid-election or pre-post any circumstance or situation that our God sitting on his throne kind of wrung his hands and said, I don't know what to do about this. He is still firmly in control of the universe. The universe is not spinning off of its axis. The universe is not careening down a hill without a God who is ruling over all things. God has an order in his universe. Acts chapter 17, verse 26. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. From Adam, he made every nation. And by the way, it's becoming more and more popular in the Christian church today, and I'll use that term in air quotes, to deny the actual historicity of a real physical human Adam. People say, no, he's just a metaphor. Can I just tell you, if there is no real historical Adam and Eve, then there are so many things in the Bible that we can just absolutely throw out. So if somebody comes and says, I don't believe in a real historical Adam and Eve, can I just tell you, they're not preaching or teaching what the Bible truly says. And I know you say, what got you off on that? You'd just be amazed at the number of people I've talked to lately who have denied that there is a real Adam and Eve. You start denying Adam and Eve, and then before long, you start denying the work of the second Adam, who is Jesus. It's free. Do with it what you will. Read your Bibles. Believe your Bibles. Live like it's true. He has made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face, all all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Do you know the reason America's boundaries are the way they are? Because God has established its boundaries and its dwelling place. That's why, according to God's word, he has determined the allotted periods and boundaries of the dwelling place. You find certain empires that fall and that are no more. Do you know why? Because they reached the end of their allotted time and God's expiration date was there and God said, you're no more. We're done. Greco-Roman empire, done. Persian empire, finished. Assyrians, uh uh-uh. Just add his word. So God establishes this. Look at the reason, verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. The whole reason he creates it is to show that he is God. That's what we find down in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Listen to what Paul writes. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Why do you pray for your leaders, even the ones you don't like? Can I just tell you, that's been one of the hardest things in my prayer life in the last few years. Lifting up leaders that maybe A, I didn't vote for, or B, I don't like their policies, or C, they're doing something that's very damaging, and me saying, Lord, please work in their hearts. There have been so many leaders, I've just been praying, God, save them. God, do a work. Confront them with your holiness. Show them who you are in the midst of their rebellion, in the midst of their sin, in the midst of their futility of mind. Show up and show them who you are. Give them revelation of who you are. Notice Paul says the reason we're praying is so that we can live peaceful and quiet life. God be dignified. Look, verse 3, this is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge 
of the truth. Listen, there may be times, there may be nations where it's harder to be salt and light. It's harder to live as a Christian. It may be cultural times, cultural seasons where it may be hard to live as salt and light. But can I tell you, the Bible says, regardless of who is in the White House, regardless of who is in the State House, regardless of who is occupying any of the branches of Congress, regardless who is sitting on the Supreme Court, we are to remain faithful. Period. It doesn't matter what goes on. We're to remain faithful. I think about the church in China, and there's so much negativity. And we're talking about people who are being taken from their house churches if they are found, and they are taken and they are put in the literal salt mines to work until they die. They never see the light of day again, and they are being faithful to the end. And then I talk to Christians around here, and people are like, oh, I don't know what we're going to do. Yeah, you haven't been sent to the salt mine yet. But for goodness sake, y'all, we are to pray. We are to seek God. We are to seek, yes, absolutely, we are to seek godly leaders. But whenever an ungodly leader is occupying an office, we are not to say, God, you know what? I just give up on God. I give up on Christianity. I'm just going to give up on worship. What difference does it make? Remain faithful. Faithful. That's what God wants. Remain faithful. Be salt and light no matter what the world does. You remain faithful. And then finally, respond to God's kingdom with humility. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's humility that's involved in that. Kiss the sun. That's an idea of, of showing, uh, showing acquiescence to authority. Bowing down, kissing the sun, kissing the, the hand of the ruler. Saying, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to obey you. Notice that the biblical idea of God being the king over all things. We have to understand that the hope of the world, the hope of of our world is not based upon the restoration of a nation. No, it is based upon surrender to a kingdom. That's what it's based upon. I talked to somebody the other day and they said, you know, if America falls, the whole world's going to fall. We are hopeless if America falls. God's still on his throne. I don't want America to fall by no means. God's still on his throne. If America were no more tomorrow, God would still be on his throne and we would still be citizens, those of us who are Christians, of a heavenly eternal kingdom. So we have to understand that it's based upon this kingdom invading the the world in which we live and us being transformed by Christ. And we're approaching him out of humility. Colossians 1.13, Paul writes, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And what do we know about his kingdom? Daniel tells us, Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it, his kingdom, shall stand forever. No other nation is going to stand forever, just God's kingdom. God's rule and God's reign over all of the universe. He's going to make it all right. He's going to set it all right one day. And if we are followers of Christ, we're a part of that kingdom. Even now, we're a part of that kingdom. And we are to live as ambassadors. We are to live as his representatives among the nations. 
no matter what our nation does. Now, we do pray that something will occur, that God will send spiritual revival to our nation. Absolutely. Whether we're facing facing spiritual revival or spiritual wrath largely depends upon repentance. That's what it depends upon. That's where it hangs. Not because God's going to overlook anything, not because we get a buy, not because we get a pass. No, no, no. But because of the righteousness that is found in Christ if we're seeking him. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7, you find this is the command that's given as they are going to be in Babylon. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Why do we pray for our nation? Because in its welfare, we find our welfare. Because our nation, our governmental system, it exists to create an environment where we are able to share the gospel where we can live peaceful lives and share the gospel and make Jesus known. The government is not responsible for sharing the gospel. The church is responsible for sharing the gospel. The church is responsible for taking that message, not the government. But the government is to create an environment. That's God's responsibility, God's authority that he has given to them. And you may say, well, what if a government doesn't do that? Then God calls them on the carpet. God's judgment awaits any government, any nation that tries to hinder that. But biblically speaking, that is the role. That is the ultimate role. But here's the bottom line. Even if the government doesn't fulfill its role, we as the church fulfill ours. We go and we make Christ known. Whether we find ourselves in America, whether we find ourselves in secularized Europe, where there was once a hotbed of Christianity and now is just steep in secularism, whether it's some communist country that like China where Christianity is, is kept under the heavy thumb and the iron rule of the government, doesn't matter. doesn't matter. We are to remain faithful. I'm reminded that in first century, in first century Christianity, Christianity thrived and grew and spread despite the Roman war machine and the Roman government pressing down upon it. In fact, it spread despite it. In the early 1700s, we, we find, if you go back in history and you look, you find the Great Awakening. I'm almost done. Just hang with me. Don't, don't check out yet. Thank you for the permission. <laughs> we may be here for another two hours if you give me permission like that. Much longer. Y'all get heated up, and I'll get heated up even more. It's like throwing kerosene on a fire. You find the Great Awakening. You find what happened is in the early days of the colonies, in the early 1700s, this is before the revolution, early 1700s, America was just a set of colonies, but America had already begun to slip back into secularism, humanism, personal well-being, selfishness. Hadn't been been around that long at all. And already things were starting to slip. And Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon, famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards was invited to preach at a church, and Jonathan Edwards showed up and, and Jonathan Edwards had a, a case full of his sermons. That's how, they, that's how they had them back then. And he had a case full of sermons, manuscripts that he had written out. And he had preached that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, beforehand at another church. And um, the, the, the response was tepid at, at, at best. But Jonathan Edwards, that night in that church meeting, sensed that God was leading him to preach that sermon. 
And so he stepped into the pulpit. He took that manuscript. And so many times when we think about sinners in the hands of an angry God, we see, we see uh, paintings or we see drawings of that. You see Jonathan Edwards, and he's, he's so fiery, and he's got his finger pointed toward heaven, and everybody's crying out for mercy. That's not the way it went down, according to observers. He just read it. He got up, he pulled out his manuscript, and he just read it in a monotone voice about the coming wrath of God, his hatred toward sin, and the mercy that's found in Jesus. And at certain points in time in the sermon, he had to pause because people were in the aisles crying out and screaming out for mercy. And he had to pause till they could get quieted down enough that he could continue reading his sermon. And that sermon sparked the first great awakening in America, transformed the face of America. What many people don't know is that Jonathan Edwards had been fasting and praying for days. For days upon days, he had been fasting and praying. He had locked himself in his room, and he could be heard to be praying one single prayer. God, give me New England. 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 Not that he's asking for some glory in himself, but he's saying, Lord God, give New England over to this teaching. Give New England over to your word. Lord, give me New England. Use me, O God. And God did. And it transformed the face of our nation for many, many years to come. Can I tell you what the hope of our nation is? The hope of our nation is for men and women of God to cry out, Lord God, give us America. Lord God, do a work that only you can do. God, show up and show yourself as God. God, please send revival. That's not something we work up. That's not something we can plan. That is a sovereign act of a holy God who breaks in to our culture and shows himself for who he is. Can I just tell you, that's the hope that we have. That's how we are to live among the nations. Can I tell you, if national revival never comes, each one of us can have individual revival. Each one of us can have that fresh anointing of God. Each one of us can have that fresh understanding of the holiness of God, of the goodness of God, of the mercy of God, of the grace of God, and live in the light of that revelation. And that is how God would have us to live as lights among the nations. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you recognizing that our hope is completely and totally wrapped up in Christ. Any hope that we have as a nation, any hope that we have as the American church, any hope that we have as family, any hope that we have as individuals is completely and totally wrapped up in the person and the work of Jesus alone. And Father, we, we repent. Uh, you tell us in your word that judgment begins at the house of the Lord. And Lord, for our failings, our shortcomings, our inconsistency in the way that we live our lives in the world, our lack of boldness in sharing the truth of the gospel, our, our willingness to compromise on so many things, the idolatry that we have practiced when we lift anyone or anything to the same level as you. Father God, we recognize that in so many ways we have fail to make you known we fail to give you thanks and acknowledge you as god father we see in our culture that the outworking of that wrath of abandonment 
Father, we're thankful that you tell us you'll never leave us or forsake us for those of us who are your children. But we do recognize that the, the well-being of the city in which we live, so to speak, according to Jeremiah, according to its welfare, that will impact our welfare. And Father, we know that you say in your word that you desire all to come to a saving knowledge of you. But we also recognize that no one will hear unless your word is proclaimed. And Father, we pray that you would do a work in our hearts as followers of Christ and that you would do that work in such a way that we would have a renewed passion, a renewed concern for the things of your kingdom, recognizing that everything that we see is going to pass away, but that everyone we meet is an eternal being who will spend an eternity somewhere. Father, may we be more concerned about a heart transformation than we are some sort of behavior modification. May we be concerned about true transformation, spiritual transformation, than we are just empty morality, just going through the motions and obeying a list of rules. Father, we don't want to do that. We recognize we need a relationship with Jesus, and we pray that you would do a work in our land, do a work in our churches, send revival, restore us, renew us, revive us, because that is something we cannot do ourselves. We can't work it up ourselves. We can't dream it of ourselves. We can't plan it or schedule it. Only you can do that by a sovereign act. So, Father, we ask that you would do just that. Father, we pray for anybody here this morning. Lord, and I ask you, who doesn't know you, I pray that today would be the day they would say yes. Recognizing they are facing an eternal wrath. Just as we have eternal life, there is eternal wrath. It never ends. So, Father, I pray that they would turn from their sin. They would turn from self. They would surrender fully to Jesus and say, just as, just as Amelia did this morning, I want to surrender my life to Christ. I want to live for him. I'm his now. I'm not my own. I live for him and him alone. Father, I pray they would ask for forgiveness of their sins and turn, repent toward Christ alone. Father, we give you thanks for all the blessings you've given us. We give you thanks for the blessing of living in this land. Despite all the issues and concerns and, and, and sin, Father, we recognize that that you have granted us to live in this time, in this place, in these allotted boundaries. And Father, I pray that you might give us the strength, the wisdom, and the boldness to live as your kingdom citizens in this time, in this place, to make Christ known and see many people come to him in salvation. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.